Many religious studies textbooks warn of the danger of religious studies. You see, it's one thing to intellectually play around with the people over there or way back when. But what happens when you recognize that the group you're studying believes itself to be just as good-natured, faithful, and rational as you? Once we realize that no one identifies themselves as a villain, we enter the danger zone of wondering how society's bad guys are so much, maybe too much, like us. Kelly Baker is a freelance writer with a Ph.D. in American Religious History. She visited my Ethnicity, Gender, and Religion seminar to discuss insights from her book, Gospel According to the Klan, The KKK's Appeal to Protestant America, 1915-1930. In this award-winning work, she doesn't just settle at directing our attention to white Christian extremism. She underscores some of the misdirection that keeps Americans from recognizing just how mainstream racism is in the Christian liberty they hold so dear. Part of my frustration is, like, there's a story we tell about America <laughs> that assumes post-racial in a really detrimental way. And I'm saying, no, 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 those stories we tell about America that you think are nice, cozy, cuddly stories are actually really uncomfortable stories that bolster white supremacy. That's coming up right now. From sowingtheseed.org, this is Broadcast Seeding, the podcast with future food for thought on religion, culture, and teaching. I'm Richard Newton. We're glad you've joined us. We're joined today by award-winning writer and historian Kelly J. Baker. She's with us to discuss her book, Gospel According to the Klan, the KKK's Appeal to Protestant America, 1915 to 1930. And joining us as well are co-hosts from my seminar, Ethnicity, Gender, and Religion. Peyton Wagmeister. Andy Archibald. Samantha Mundor. Sabria Fountain. This is a book that you might be a little tentative about having in front of people, you know, whether you're riding on the bus or sitting in a restaurant or at work, you know, you might take off the dust jacket. Um, but you wrote this book. You felt like it needed to be written. So I'm curious, like, yeah, why Gospel According to the Klan? Yeah, this is a question I get all the time, and um, what you should know is that this is a book that I wrote because I'm contrary, and um, it's like my contrariness in like 100,000 words. Um, so in graduate school, we had this seminar, um, and I always worked with people who wanted to write about religion in positive ways. So they wanted to write about civil rights activists because we're so inspired by them, or they wanted to write about Quakers because they were abolitionists. Um, and they always wanted to write about religion in this kind of warm and cozy and comfortable sort of way. And, and after about a couple semesters of seminars, I just started sniping at them <laughs> uh, because there was a way in which they wanted to narrate religion as inherently a positive experience. They kind of ignored um, things that I had noticed, um, particularly because I grew up in the rural South, so I had a kind of different experience of evangelicalism than a lot of them did. I had a different experience of what religion and race look like together. And so I tried to find a case study where I could explode their narratives. So it was very me willingly saying, like, this narrative drives me nuts. How do I smash it, right? Um, and so it, went, it didn't take much looking to figure out um, that people in American religions didn't write a lot about the Klan. When they did, they talked about how marginal it was, how it wasn't mainstream, how it was an aberration, right? And it was something that 
existed and then went away and then we're done with it, right? And we're done with racism. Um, and so I decided that I would write a paper on it and then I wrote another paper on it and then the next thing you know, I wrote a dissertation prospectus and then a dissertation and then a book on this um, to make a claim about how um, when we look at American culture in particular, we have to pay attention to currents of religious and racial violence and to try to understand that in these stories that we prefer, like about pluralism and freedom and um, how America is the place where dreams come true, right? And to show that these really nasty, not very nice stories exist alongside of them, we're just not really willing to look at them. But then the title is Gospel According to the Klan and looks at the KKK's appeal to Protestant America. So what good news does the Klan have for Protestant America? Well, I mean, what the Klan does really effectively is that they tap into all those American narratives that people want to pay attention to. Um, they just do it by very much advocating white supremacy as a part of this vision, right? So they're about religious freedom, but they're about religious freedom for Protestants, right? Not for Catholics, not for Jews, um, not from anyone outside of that spectrum of what they're comfortable with. Um, they are all about the American dream as long as it's limited to white Protestants, right? Um, so that dream can be built on the backs of other people and um, they're kind of unapologetic in how they appreciate this. So they're able to tap into a lot of the anxieties in the early 20th century about immigration, about outsider religious movements, about the shape of the nation, and say, actually, we agree with all of you, right? We're just taking it a little bit further, right? Um, and gonna present it in a way that suggests that white Protestants are the only real inheritors of all of the promise of America. And unsurprisingly, that message really works in, um, from about 1915 to 1930, that they're able to really motivate people by telling them a story that they wanna hear that doesn't actually shift too far from the narratives that appear in history books, right? Um, and, and give them an option of also being saviors of this nation, right? That the nation is under threat, so now you get to step up and be a part of this. Um, and so they just hit kind of the right combination of all of those things to convince people um, that they want to be a part of this movement. And when people think about the Klan, they, I imagine, have in their minds, you know, what you see from films right. and the snapshots in history books, right. and that is people on horses, often white horses, right, or right, a yeah. horse covered in a white shroud. And right. The, the horse rider is a man, you know, carrying a cross, and maybe the cross is on fire, you know, and the whole white get up, and so they look like ghosts. They look like right. these aberrations in and of yeah. themselves, um, and thus don't have to be taken seriously, but clearly they were a force to be reckoned right. with in some way, and what was it that Protestant Americans saw in the Klan where they said, well, you're not that far off, or at right. least I get where you're at, right? Yeah. I'll have something to do with you. Yeah, and I mean, I think what makes them different and what people, most people latch onto is that stuff that makes them spectacular, right? So when people generally think about the Klan, they think about the robes or the burning crosses, right? What they don't think about is the rhetoric and the ideology that already exists in American culture that they're just capitalizing on, right? So the Klan kind of neatly packages this in basically what's a fraternal order, right? So they're saying to American men, white Protestant American men, like, you can take back your nation, all you have to do is pick up a robe, right? Like, we're on board with you, otherwise, we just want you to participate in these other sorts of things. But the robe and cross are so, are like, integral parts, but it's also a small piece of what they're doing, right? They're also talking about politics, they're also talking about theology, 
Um, they're paying very close attention to legislation. They're making sure it gets passed, right? So there's all this other maneuvering, but I think we get caught up sometimes on the material means yeah. of what they're doing instead. Um, and then you can say, like, well, no one buys into this because no, not everyone's walking around in the um, hidden robe. And so when they had millions of members in the 20s, they also had all of these supporters who are not joining the order, right? Because the means do make some folks nervous, but they have a lot of people that are sympathetic to what they're trying to argue, right? And try, especially the nation they're trying to imagine um, is really popular in this moment and remarkably mainstream. Yeah. So had people remembered the Klan from the sort of Civil War era in those days at this moment? So because the, the book really focuses on that early right. 20th century right. um, iteration of the Klan. Is that the second wave of the Klan? It is. Mm -hmm. um, do they have in mind the reputation that came from the first and that they lost? You know, I guess that's yeah, the American story um, that they lost. They do, and they're kind of very consciously trying to distance themselves from that first Reconstruction Klan right after the Civil War because they were so clearly vigilantes. So there's like a very conscious movement on the part of like the upper echelons of Klan leadership to say, we appreciate what you're doing. <laughs> we appreciate the kind of white supremacy you have. But we're doing something that's a little more benevolent, right? We're doing something that's a little safer, a little more comfortable, um, and we're not vigilant. So they're very much trying to sort of distance themselves from that. Um, and so a lot of times I think when people imagine the Klan, they think of the violence of the Reconstruction Klan or the violence of the Klan in the 1950s and 1960s, right, where they're involved in bombing and terrorism and there's clear violence. In the 1920s, they were really trying for some kind of middle-class respectability. Um, and I think that's why they had that broader appeal. So the different waves of the Klan, as you said, have really different kind of identities. Um, but this 1920s Klan was super smart about marketing and public relations and the kind of image that they wanted to present, right? And it was an easily consumable mm -hmm. one for a lot of people. So what's some of the stuff, like the paraphernalia that goes on with the, <laughs> yeah. the Klan? Um, so uh, the hood and robe, of course, right, is a part of this. Um, one of the things that I try to make clear in the book is that um, it's not just a uniform for them, that it has like a particular theology attached to it, right? So when they're thinking about the robes and they're thinking about the hood, that they're conjuring images of Jesus and self-sacrifice and whiteness and that all of these are combined together. Um, there's the burning cross, right, which is kind of that one of the images that I think most sticks with them still, like in popular culture, right, um, where Klansmen tried to claim that it's the light of Jesus that they're shining down on people, and victims say that's nonsense. You're trying to terrorize us, right? And they're trying to do both of these simultaneously, right? Um, yeah. It's funny kind of that way. that's an image that's so contentious. I remember growing up United Methodist, uh -huh. um, yeah. whose denomination is the cross uh -huh. and the flame, and right, the flame is supposed yep. to be of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, yep. and people would joke, oh, it's a burning cross, you know, you're you're part of the Klan, and my mom, who's hardcore United Methodist, and other people I know who are pretty hardcore United Methodist, would say, no, if you look at it, there's actually a space between the cross right. and the flame, right. yeah. because we're not burning the cross, mm -hmm. it's that the cross is on fire with the spirit, right, right. the sort mm -hmm. of, or it's consumed with the spirit idea. So so with the Klan's interpretation of what they're doing or what they're saying they're doing right. isn't so far off from a lot of Christian right. rhetoric that's been about passionate flames and right. that cross symbol, which is already a weird juxtaposition, if you will, right? You, know, you have this torture <laughs> symbol, the cross, and 
fire, which you know how powerful it can be. Right. Um, let's put it together, and it represents who we are right, and what right. it be. So that makes sense, I guess. I guess. <laughs> no, and I mean, and part of my goal with the book is to say, like, they aren't that far off, right? And, and a lot of the pushback I've gotten is people being like, this looks a lot like my Methodism. And I'm like, because it, it you know, because it is, right? They're Klansmen, Klansmen who are Methodists. They're Klansmen who are Baptists, right? Um, and so that they're drawing from mainland traditions, they're drawing from evangelical traditions, right? So that they're not actually that distant from Christian groups that still exist today. Um, and for a lot of folks, that's a hard sell <laughs> because yeah. you don't want to think that you're two steps away from Klansmen's theology, right? I mean, that's not a very comfortable position to be in. And it's, imagine as a historian, as a writer, it's a tricky road. You know, if you're telling the story that is useful to think about, right? This is a way of thinking about who we are, where we've come from, what we're doing now, right? right? I mean, it's, I'm resisting every temptation to discuss what does this mean for us right now? Right, I just want right, to yeah, yeah, sit yeah. with yeah. what you've presented here. Um, we could easily go that route, but it also, if we just look at that moment, that 1950 to 1913 window, there's so many other groups that are doing such similar things. Uh -huh. You know, I taught just this morning a class in the Moorish Science Temple of right. America that's coming up in this time period African Americans who are trying to figure out how to make sense of the failures of Reconstruction, right. um, what they're supposed to do in light of the Great Depression, and they claim this identity of coming from another place and being more noble than the world sees them. And they wear this regalia and these, you know, uh, fez. And they say they're from this actual place, Morocco. They they're Moorish citizens. There are a lot of similarities in these sort of identifying right. moves, uh, but. I'm sure a Moore would never say they have anything to do with the Klan, right, right, right and vice right. versa. But it seems to me we're watching a dramatic moment here and people trying to, you know, throw their hat in the ring with making sense of how to do this American thing. And right. the Klan really is just one among many, I guess. What sort of violence was the Klan involved in? Or is it fair to say that they were violent? I, I mean, yeah. I, I bring this question about because I presume there's all sorts of violence that goes along with any change, right. whether, whether it's psychic or social. Um, or otherwise, and my hope in asking this question too is we think about the violence in other traditions as well. Right. So. No, and so if you wanted to believe the 1920s Klan leadership and um, their PR, they were never involved in any violence, right? Um, they wanted to claim that actually they were the targets of violence. And in some instances, they actually were, right? That there were Catholic organizations that targeted Klansmen and beat the snot out of them, right? So it wasn't like they're going. They're sort of going back and forth in interesting ways. You know, there's a riot at Notre Dame in which Klansmen and Catholic Fighting Notre Dame Irish students, Notre Dame. right? Okay. Fighting Irish Notre Dame. Fighting each other in the streets, right? And they're ripping Klansmen's robes off, and then they're wearing them, right? I mean, so there's just like this wild moment, right, where there's clearly like violence on both sides. Um, but the Klan in the 20s was also involved with vigilante action, right? Um, there are unsolved murders that it looks like Klansmen are involved. Um, there's a really famous case with a Klan leader, D.C. Stevenson, um, where he pretty much rapes and um, eventually leads to, through his actions, leads to this, um, this murder of this young woman, right? So there's clearly like violence attached to them in different ways. It's just not the kind of like wholesale violence that you see with other incarnations of the Klan, right? So they're not, um, they're not completely nonviolent as they like to claim. They are invo involved in these pockets of this. Um, 
But what's kind of interesting about it is that they also don't have to be. So there's kind of this moment in the 20s where um, other people are targeting Catholics, right? Or targeting African Americans. So the, the culture is kind of doing the work for them, right? That they don't have to do this extra legal stuff because some of it actually works through legal means if we're talking about the brutalization of bodies and um, the violence against different types of people. So that they kind of don't have to be in this moment because there are other mechanisms that do it for them, that they support, right, and direct energy towards. Right, there's already um, a government yeah. program there's already for a government the subjugation of, of African-American yeah. people so, and so they don't have to worry about it. Yeah, yeah, so they don't have to worry about it, right? Um, and, and that changes, right, once they're no longer mainstream, right, then they start turning more to acts of terrorism, bombing, outright murder that you find in the 50s and 60s. Um, and even later in the 70s. So it is it's kind of an interesting moment where they aren't as violent as they could have been, right? Um, but they also have the benefit of being the privileged body, right? Yeah. You know, in American culture, too, to sort of back that up. And we notice resonances with the Klan and other fraternal organizations, right. which is how they sort of identify. Right. Mm -hmm. What sort of philanthropy are they doing or service <laughs> right, community right. projects i imagine those have to be there too yeah, right they are um so uh, benevolence was always high on their list of like priorities so each year i love their print culture um partially because they tell you pretty much everything right like they do for a secret organization they overshare it's kind of beautiful um it's beautiful for the historian right probably not for people not for them and people keeping track of them. But every year they would have like um, of like an agenda for the year, right? And they like list out their priorities. And every year one of the priorities is benevolence, right? So they would give money to orphanages, right, of children, unless they were Catholic orphanages, and then they wouldn't. Um, they would give money to churches. Um, they would put together baskets of food and toys at Christmas and deliver to churches in their regalia. Um, they would give money to um, church funds for building. Um, really interestingly, one of my, kind of one of the finds that I had in the archive that I kind of had to sit there with for a moment is that they also distributed Bibles to African-American churches, but they would show up in full regalia to pass out these Bibles. I mean, and just kind of like the psychic shock of that is kind of, interesting and then you know like the um, pastors would write them like a thank you note that they would then publish right and I mean it's one of those where you're just like wow, African -American, humans are, pastors African American pastors right who would then write like a thank you note and it would appear in print culture and like my my brain has a hard time like wrapping around that still um, years later so they were involved in all kinds of different actions um, there were a few Klansmen um, that were martyrs that they would then set up funds for wives and children right, and families to guarantee that they could handle funeral services and have money um, to live off of. There was talk at one point of college funds, right? Like get, the Klan would sponsor you to go to college, right? Um, which is kind of a strange thing to think about. Um, but they, they would be involved in these actions mostly for like the photo op moment, right? Of like, here are Klansmen in their robes holding a basket, right? here. So they were very, very clever about like the strategy of looking charitable um, alongside actually being charitable, right? They understood that they needed to document this alongside the other things that they were doing, right? Um, and that's interesting so far as this particular moment, 1915 to 1930, you're seeing newspapers and other media, you know, early radio, et cetera, right. taking shape, and 
ministries have to find how they're going to get their word uh-huh. out, right? I mean, that's what they want to use, right? You want to have a radio show to reach the people in the cities with your good news, with your right, gospel. Right. And of course the clan's doing it. It sounds like they're actually kind of ahead of the game. They are. I mean, they're very sophisticated um, in a moment where other organizations aren't. I mean, this is the kind of the shocking thing to me, right, is that I think oftentimes um, we kind of assume that people that came before us were not modern like we are, right? So I can remember sitting in the archives and being like, wow, like, they have a dedicated clan press, right? They have a national paper, they have regional papers, they understand how to run this, they have photographers, right? They have people writing op-eds, they have, so that they really understand how newspaper culture works in a moment before a lot of newspapers understand how newspaper culture should work, right? I mean, they kind of, they get this and they understand how important this is um, in a way before other organizations actually do. Right, um, and and that they're big on controlling their narrative, and they understand it that way, right? Like this is our story that we're telling. We need to be on story. We need to be on point. Um, so that they're doing branding before you have like the language of branding, right? Um, and and that's what's kind of really interesting to me is that they're already thinking through like what is the story the clan wants to tell? Well, I don't know. Let's sit down at this editorial meeting and figure it out, right? What like what are what are our story points and what are we gonna do? And they're educated right clansmen and right, clansmen right. of means yeah. too, right, right. right? This is mm-hmm. not just poor white rural culture right. as often, you know, sort of yeah. typified in the post facto narrative right. of that, that clan. It's, it's amazing to me to see, and maybe perhaps not surprising to see, so many resonances between this iteration of the Klan and African-American culture, as I brought up before, because African-Americans at this time, with all their different religious movements that are taking shape in the cities, are becoming really adept at using technology, right? right? Black televangelism and these things are going to come out of this history. Um, Jonathan Walton has a great book on this. They are learning to use these technologies because they're really in dire straits and have right, to get their right. message out. Like It's a sort of life and death situation that this message be spread right. um, because people are like hanging on the words whether it's the airwaves or in print so does the clan really see itself in a kind of moment of like a tipping point like we've got to do something is yes. that a fair yeah read? no it is i mean it's just kind of it's interesting to me because it's like the, the continual lament of a certain class of white protestants in american culture which is like we used to be dominant we're about to not be we have to get our ducks in a row right so the clan is doing this in the 20s, right? And then you see the Tea Party rehearse this again more recently, right? And that other groups are doing this, like in any moment will be the minority, right? Um, and what's interesting to me is that they start grasping at this at a moment where they've already lost. I mean, that's kind of the, int- like I have the benefit of knowing how the story ends, right? Um, it's the beauty of doing history as opposed to being a journalist or something like this when the story is unfolding is that they're like grasping on, but they've already kind of lost their edge, right? Like the culture's already shifted out from under them and they're working really hard to try to figure out how to climb back up, right? Um, And so the newspapers is part of the story, right? Major recruitment campaigns is another part, trying to do legislation, right? To kind of make this work in some way. But yeah, they do, I mean, they really do see themselves on kind of a, like the nation is imperiled, which is why we have to act in this way. It also justifies most of their really nasty behavior too uh, because of the danger that they sort of imagine is involved. Um, Would you say that the Klan was fueled by fear? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that was apparent to me as I was like going through um, newspaper after newspaper is that there's like this keen sense of desperation that they have, right? Like at any moment the world's going to change on us. We're no longer going to be at the top. 
we don't want to be at the bottom, right? We know what the bottom looks like. Like no one wants to end up moving from um, from moving to being like the top on the food chain to being the bottom on the food chain. What are we going to do? So they're really motivated by this like fear that they're going to lose status, right? That the country is going to shift in such a way that what they imagine America to be is no longer America. Um, and that then they're going to have to live in this brand new world, right? Um, and that, that really is terrifying to them, I think, um, and sort of makes them act in ways that are increasingly desperate, right, um, and, and as how they shift through this. But, I mean, it's kind of that, like, what do all groups do when they're on the cusp of, like, modernity, right? Like, like what do we do when we know that change is coming and how do we act, right? Can we transition, right, or can we not? And the clan is really not sure they can transition. So much of what they're doing is, like, a looking backwards. It's a nostalgic, like, this is what America was, right, and this is what we want it to continue to be instead of looking forward, right? So it's this kind of past-looking movement always, right? Um, where they want to say, like, remarkably wild things, like Abraham Lincoln would have appreciated us, and you have to say, like, time out, no, right? Like, <laughs> just no, like, that's not the case, right? Um, or that we are the inheritors of the Puritans, and I imagine that the Puritans probably would have been like, nope, nope, right? Like, I mean, so it's this kind of interesting way that they're trying to selectively grasp American history to sort of bolster up their position and not look forward. I mean, that's kind of what's interesting to me is that, um, that they're not so good at, like, what could a new vision be, right? It's more like, let's hold on to this one that we've had. But they can't go so far as to say, remember the good old days that's of right. the South, right? right. Oh, it's... yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, and that's why they're grasping from, like, Lincoln, right? I mean, so they make this really wild argument that um, – H.W. Evans, who becomes the main imperial wizard during this time, um, that he is really close to, like, the reincarnation of Lincoln. And um, having read Lincoln and things that Lincoln said and sort of following Lincoln's presidency and having read, <laughs> read Evans, I can say that that's probably not the case, right? Like, kind of unequivocally. But it's this attempt to, like, claim someone who's seen as a hero, right, after the Civil War because they don't want to be painted as attached to slavery, like they understand the dangerousness of being attached to the South, right, um, while they still want to be attached to the South, right, um, so they clearly are trying um, to hold on to some of that stuff, but trying to be kind of tricky about how they approach it, right, um, so yes, they don't talk too much about slaves, go figure, uh, they don't talk too much about Native Americans, right, so when they tell the history of America, it's like, Puritans, we don't talk about Columbus because he's Catholic, right? <laughs> they're like, ta-da, Civil War, yay, Lincoln, right? I mean, they're doing really careful to, like, avoid all the landmines that are there about race and brutality and violence and colonialism. They're trying really hard to get around those as best they can. Um, so as far as the views on, like, I just wanted to kind of get where you were thinking. Um, religion and terrorist groups, mm -hmm. so, like, throughout your research and like throughout buying and everything um did you kind of see like a connection or like the intertwining of the two and how they end up coming out because i know like a lot of the terrorist groups now they're they claim to be like religious based right. or doing this because of religion yeah. so i wasn't sure if there was any other i don't know how to say it. yeah no i mean it's a really it's a really good question and it's a really complicated question right um, so there are people that want to claim 
and I'm if my voice doesn't tell you, I'm very skeptical that um, <laughs> that religion is like what motivates terrorism, right? Like that that's like the main motivator. It's these people that are in these absolutist religions that then kind of turn into this. Um, yeah, okay, maybe, right? Maybe. Um, I think that instead, it's more it's more that religion offers a language and a worldview that justifies actions that they already wanted to make, right? Um, so they are Christian, right, in this moment. I don't doubt that they're Christian, but there's a certain way that they can read Christianity into what they're doing that offers a justification better than politics, right, or white supremacy, right? It gives them a very serious language and a serious claim about how to handle themselves. And, and that's what I think happens with these more modern incarnations of terrorism too, right? That religion is something that's around them, but it gives them something that has a little more oomph, right, to it, a little more seriousness, more stark consequences, right, that kind of allows for these kinds of motivations, right? Um, and part of this is because, um, and this shouldn't be a surprise to you, because <laughs> to begin with, is that, you know, religion is really malleable, right? So people use this to do really noble, wonderful things, right? Like um, you have people that are very committed to social justice or they're very committed um, to saving the environment from this very like deeply religious base or spiritual and sometimes depending on kind of how you wanna, you wanna frame this. Um, but there are people that can equally turn to text, right? whether it be the Bible or the Quran, and find the kind of justification to what they want to do anyway, right? It gives them that kind of apparatus, the scaffolding um, to do this, right? These kind of very, and this is where kind of interesting things happen where people are like, that's a very selective interpretation, to which I'm like, of course it is, right? Like they need to justify this kind of violent action, which means you have to be very kind of particular in how you approach a tradition or a text, right? To get that kind of justification. Um, so yeah, so I think that's a part of it, right? I don't, I don't think that, as there are some that are apt to do, that there's something inherent, right, about religion that leads to this. Um, I think that humans do terrible things to each other all the time, right? And, and that we just kind of find different justifications for that, right, at different levels and, and variation. Um, and, and so that's kind of what I always grounds me, is to think like, you know, we should think about what humans do sometimes before we start putting the labels on how these actions are, how we understand them, that um, that we can be really, really terrible just on our own. You know, um, but sometimes this gives us what we need to then commit to things that are even more terrible or disastrous or violent. Um, so I'm backtracking a little bit. Okay. Uh, you mentioned the newspaper, um, mm -hmm. and it was clear in your book it's like it was really important. My question is how you think the success and failure of the Klan would have been different if they had access to internet and social oh, media yeah. and all that good stuff? Yeah, no, this is an excellent question. Um, God, the, the idea of like the 1920s Klan with social media is remarkably disturbing to me. Like, I mean, um, they were media mavens then, like now, like they would be able to own it. Um, so what we know is that white supremacy and white supremacist organizations have been able to use the internet in ways that we couldn't have quite planned for or imagined, right? Um, so Stormfront, which is like the oldest white supremacist website, was on the internet just when there were like the bulletin board pages on the internet. So like in 1995, right? Um, so it's almost 21 years old, 
and is still a vibrant community of white supremacists who organize and chat with people from everything ranging from what your next white supremacist tattoo should be to like, you know, ferreting out memes or like organizing things, right? Uh, they do a paid membership and make money off of this, right? Like they're very, they're very good at, at using this in different ways, right? Um, so I think in a lot of ways the saving grace um, is that a lot of these movements are not near as organized or as structured as some of the earlier white supremacist movements were, right? So that it's a lot of leaderless stuff, it's people that are kind of interested in this, but there's also kind of a global connectedness to it now that's really unnerving, right? So that far-right white supremacist in Europe can chat a white supremacist in Tennessee or Florida, right? Um, so that they pass information along and, and organize this way. Um, the internet and social media also means it's harder to track them down than it was previously, right? So in the 20s, they had chapters, right? And then they had chapters on top of chapters, and they had an organization, and they had membership rosters, right? And this kind of thing. Um, because of the Southern Poverty Law Center's strategy um, to take on the Klan by claiming that they weren't nonprofits and that they didn't follow the tax laws in the ways that they should, most of these organizations no longer keep records, right? Or have chapters or do any of these things because they don't want to be prosecuted this way. So they kind of adapted to the scenario. Um, so, they, so they're still very active, right? And they're on Facebook and they're on Twitter. And periodically I get some white supremacist in my Twitter mentions because they like an article of mine because it's on the Klan without reading it, right? I mean, it's one of those things where they assume that like I'm on board. Where they can read it enough they, and they, be they, like, well, well, okay, right? Um, which is a really, yeah, which is, causes me some remarkable cognitive dissonance. Um, and so, so these, so they're, so they're there, right? Uh, and it's and it's present, and um, because of that, it means that a lot of this information is more free flowing than it might have been in a previous period. So, with the 1920s plan, you didn't get a Klan newspaper unless you were a member, right? I mean, somebody could pass it to you. Now, I mean, Dylan Roof, right? Um, who's a shooter in Charleston? was online, right, with different communities, reading manifestos, finding information, having people encourage him. I mean, that's a kind of different world that we live in, right? And, and in a lot of ways, a scarier one, right? Um, because you're not quite sure what's out there and who's doing what and, and what this kind of means. Right. From what I understand, you know, the organization itself wouldn't necessarily say, go out and do right. this violent act. Yep. But they could signal things about lone wolves going right. and mm -hmm. doing their thing, right? Uh, now it seems like that's all there is. It's right. just yeah, mode the wolves that right. you kind of meet up online in these chat rooms and connect mm -hmm. back and forth. I know there was recently Anonymous was, or whoever anonymous right. yeah. is Anonymous and calls yeah. itself yeah. Anonymous, yeah. Yeah, right. right? I mean, it's part of the same decentralized sort of concept. Uh, they were posting sort of web lingo that clansmen would use to right. connect mm -hmm. with one another, uh -huh. um, which I think when people saw it, it's like, wow, this is so esoteric and weird. But right. We're also in an age of text messaging and knows, GTG right? yeah. and LOL and all of this as well. So, I mean, it's not – on the surface, these things that look weird often are a reflection of things we're already doing in the culture. Right. Um, we just don't like the means and want to go back on yeah. blaming. Right. Um, so, I just have a question. My question is sort of like this is kind of a new way of thinking about religion, which is like what you – you know, in your reasoning to right. write a book like this. I was kind of wondering like what kind of backlash <laughs> any, like, um, I've got some. I've got some. Yeah. Um, so, 
Like, was it what you expected <laughs> when, like, writing sort of um, a new... Like, if you expected anything... Yeah, no, no, that's a good question. So, so I kind of expected no one would read it, right? Like, <laughs> so I wasn't True. expecting backlash because I thought, like, this is the thing I'm going to do. And my poor partner has read this a number of times, but who knows <laughs> if anybody else is going to read Like, my dissertation committee, right? The reviewers of the press. But, like, really, I kind of imagined, you know, it was going to be on the press's list and then they were going to send me an email saying we're going to remainder it do you want it or do you want us to turn it into compost like that's kind of like what <laughs> I imagined it's life to be um so what I didn't imagine is that it would be reviewed in the New York Times and that people would actually like respond kind of viscerally to it um so American religious historians are, sometimes are not entirely sure what to do with it because I'm so consciously trying to destroy their narratives I mean in all fairness I'm being not very nice to them so I can kind of understand um, how they handle it. Um, I've had a lot of people tell me that what I'm doing can't possibly be true because it looks too similar to the religious movement that they find near and dear. So obviously I've lied about the Klan because I want to make Methodists or Evangelicals look bad or something, <laughs> right? Um, which is not the case. Wow, um, you're like the Darth Vader of this. It is, it like, is right? No, it's not true. <laughs> that's impossible. True. You're the Darth Vader, yeah. Um, no, but it is. So that's been that's been a pretty common reaction is where people are like, obviously you're not telling the truth. And I'm like, I have years of archival research to back up this. Like, this is not me just like <laughs> randomly being like, I feel this. That yeah. section is ridiculous. Yeah, right. No, I work it's very hard on that to make sure like that it looks ridiculous. That's, ex- that's right. That's, that's what historians do, right? I'm <laughs> covering all my bases there. Um, <laughs> so that's been one of the reactions that I've had. Um, I've had a lot of people like it, which is kind of wild to me too, right? Um, and kind of appreciate what it does. Every once in a while I get really nasty messages from neo-Confederates who claim that I've trashed Nathan Bedford Forrest, who I think I mentioned once <laughs> in the book. And I say that he was a Klansman, and they say, no, he wasn't. And I'm like, yes, he was. It's documented. Like, come on, right? So um, so I get that, which is weird, right? Um, I've had a whole bunch of people troll my Facebook page because they think I'm a Klansman. Like, they actually think I'm a man, <laughs> which is really funny to me. Well, they and give the benefit of the doubt they, like, on Kelly. They're like, they're like, it says Kelly, but it's totally a dude. Um, and so they, like, then are there to tell me that I'm racist and terrible and how they are. Like, I mean, they're wild. I've saved them because they're just, like, wild messages. Um I um, have had a couple people read it and tell me if I was ever interested, hint, hint, wink, wink, at, like, attending a Klan meeting, they might, like, know about one. And that's always the, like, I want to run for the hills kind of. I was like, I don't think you read it that closely. We're not on the same page um, <laughs> kind of thing. Then my favorite one is I got a letter, a letter, like an actual letter, um, from a man who claimed that he was the second coming of Jesus. And um, that he had read my book and read the New York Times review. And he wanted to know that I had a lot of stuff wrong. But if I came to his house, we could sit and have coffee and have a chat about it. And he included articles about himself as the second coming of Jesus that had been in local papers. And wanted me to know that he had been a felon, but he had been (laughs) redeemed. Um, And that was the point at which my... um, my husband was like, nope, nope, shutting it down, right? Like, this is not, like, he's like, you can't possibly go to this person's home. And I'm like, do I look like I was born yesterday? Of course I'm not going to someone's home, especially when they start out like I'm the second, like, this is just not, it's not a good strategy for living 
as long as I want to live. If someone right? says they're the second coming, they better come to you, right? Right, yeah, <laughs> like, like there's some there's some moves here. Um but but overwhelmingly it's been okay. I've had I've had some nastiness, um and and some people kind of come at me about it in interesting ways. Um when I've written about this online, I've had some like threats of violence, um and um that that was kind of something that I wasn't quite ready for and to figure out how to like process um but yeah I mean it's it is kind of this controversial thing and I very naively assumed um that that wouldn't matter because I'm an academic and I was wrong (laughs) like like I realized very quickly that um there's just something about the topic of the clan that then generates like a certain kind of response um in certain ways and it, it says a lot about the field of religious studies and the history of religion in America and American religious history, however you want to define these different conversations, um, you know, their reaction to the book says a lot about what they presume about the definition of religion yes. or what yeah. religion is supposed to define mm-hmm. and what we need it to define. I was talking recently with some uh, African-American scholars, uh, and I had told them that you're you know, coming on the show and you're coming to speak to my class, and they all knew your book. I mean, they all <laughs> recognize what it is, and I think... I never put this out as a question, but the sense that I got from our conversation was that this book really wasn't about the Klan. This book is really about Protestant America and those narratives about what it means to be American and Christian and what you can get away with when you use those terms. Um, And so in some ways, I think it really finds a nice place on um, those bookshelves of other works that for quite a while have been making this critique about how deeply seated this system of racism is. Right. And racism being different than prejudice, right? Prejudice right. is you called me a bad name, you're judging me in these ways, you're doing this. Maybe it's a macroaggression, maybe it's a microaggression. But when I'm talking about racism, you know, we're talking about systems that you're damned if you do, damned if you don't sort of thing. And that's, the Klan is really yeah. a big representation of that. It's bigger than, oh, you used the N-word, <laughs> you know, it's, it's much more like national and household, you know, dinner table conversation and get out the vote, policing borders sort right. of yeah. dynamics. Well, it's about the stories we tell ourselves too. I mean, like part of my frustration is like there's a story we tell about America <laughs> that assumes post-racial in a really detrimental way. And I'm saying, no, 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 those stories we tell about America that you think are nice, cozy, cuddly stories are actually really uncomfortable stories that bolster white supremacy. Like, when we think about these kinds of stories that are so popular, then we need to think about the racial and religious implications. And, and that, as you can imagine, makes no one happy with you when you try to make those kinds of arguments, right? I'm just saying this is much more um, integral than you ever imagined if you kind of use this kind of group as your case study to get in, right? Um, If you're using other groups, then maybe it's not as apparent, right? Or white supremacy looks benevolent. But this shows like how quickly this kind of stuff can turn and how it can be mobilized very explicitly for hatred, right? And prejudice and systemic racism, right? Like this is very clear. Well, Kelly Baker, thank you very much for hanging out with us. Thank you for having me. That was our guest, Dr. Kelly J. Baker. She's the author of Gospel According to the Klan, published by University of Kansas Press. You'll find her bylines at The Atlantic, Religion Dispatches, The Chronicle of Higher Ed, and many other places on the web. 
You can find links to all of her work at kellyjbaker.com. I'm your host, Richard Newton. On behalf of both of us, the Ethnicity, Gender, and Religion Seminar at Elizabethtown College, my production assistant, Maya Ponsuwan, thanks for being here. Until next time. Broadcast Seeding is an outgrowth of the magazine SowingTheSeed.org. If you dig what you've heard, spread the word. Like us on Facebook at Sowing the Seed, and we're on Twitter and Instagram at SeedPods. Thanks for listening.